And now, in your Bibles, will you turn to God's law as it's recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Today we'll be considering the second commandment. So we'll be reading Deuteronomy 5. Actually, I think I'm going to begin with the first commandment at verse 7 and read through verse 10. So this is the first two commandments I'll be reading. Afterwards, we'll turn to zoom in on the second commandment. We'll turn to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 26. Hear then God's law. He says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them, or serve them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And now we turn to the prophet Isaiah, to the word of God he brings to Israel. And to the church. Beginning at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens by the span? And calculated the dust of the earth by the measure? And weighed the mountains in a balance? and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, 
He seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads them leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we ask that you would now send your spirit, that you would enlarge our minds, that you would expand our thoughts of you, that we might know you better as you truly are, and not according to the vain imaginations of our hearts. Teach us, we pray, from this, your commandment. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In the journey that uh, we have begun taking together through the book of Deuteronomy, here at chapter 5, we've obviously come to the Ten Commandments. And here, beginning last week, we've tapped on the brakes a little. Very deliberately, we are slowing down from the pace that we kept through the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. We'd been doing about 70. And now all of a sudden, at chapter 5, we come, as it were, to a school zone. And so we slow down. We slow way, way down. And we'll go through these Ten Commandments fairly slowly and deliberately because... Unlike narrative history that flows onward like a river, God's moral law, summarized here, a law that before anything else describes his own eternally holy and righteous character, his moral law doesn't change. Ever. No matter how much time passes, his law doesn't change. History moves on, 
we as creatures of mere dust move along with it in the current of history. But God is eternal. He is changeless. He is immutable. So this moral law, presenting as it does his own eternally holy character, his law is permanent. And these ten commandments, all of them, not just eight or nine of them, all of them together constitute the north star that guides human behavior for as long as the earth remains. This moral law doesn't change or pass away. As for the particular narrative details of Israel's covenant history, they're all behind us, including those time-bound provisions of the law now fulfilled in the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, those Old Testament laws that we typically call ceremonial or Levitical. Those are behind us. Also affected to some extent by the passage of time are several of the features of the civil statutes that we'll be encountering in Deuteronomy. I mean those specific to the Old, uh, to Old Testament Israel for those eight and a half centuries or so that they lived as a distinct political entity within the land of Canaan, prior to the Babylonian exile. Now, the God-given principles of civil law remain the same throughout the ages because the nature of justice doesn't change. Because unlike the legislatures of mere men, when God speaks, he is, in fact, legislating morality. But we still have to admit the plain fact that historical circumstances have changed dramatically. They've changed. Back when the temple in Jerusalem still stood, as it hasn't stood now for nearly 2,000 years, back then civil and ceremonial law were knitted together, bound together in a way that's impossible for us to replicate today. For instance... As we discover in chapter 17, if the town elders, judging a local civil case, if they couldn't decide on a verdict, they were to appeal the case, as it were, to the Levitical priests assembled in Jerusalem. If the civil magistrates couldn't agree on a verdict that, beyond all reasonable doubt, glorified God, punished the guilty, and protected the innocent then their civic duty under the law was to appeal to the Levitical priests and say, help us out here. We're stumped. We can't figure this one out on our own. And obviously, that form of appellate justice isn't open to us anymore. Not at this point of history. All these historical narratives of the biblical past, the names and the dates and the places and so on, the details, they all taught us something about the glory and majesty of God, but their past. The river of time has carried them all downstream 
So the Exodus, for example, the Exodus is uh, an event already 3,400 years and counting behind us. The conquest of the land is behind us. The judges, the monarchy, the prophets, the exile, the return from the exile. It's all historically behind us now, as is the whole administration of the Old Covenant. It's past. We shouldn't expect that to reappear in any form, to any degree, ever. We shouldn't expect any of the Old Testament events and institutions and so forth to, to return. And really, we need to ask ourselves the question, why would any Christian really want it? Why should we look for the rebuilding, for instance, of a third brick-and-mortar temple in Jerusalem? Why should we look for that? When the Lord Jesus Christ raised that cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When he did that, he positively closed the books on the obsolescent old covenant that went before those types and shadows of God's old administration of grace were about to disappear forever. <clears throat> and something completely wonderfully new in the universe was about to dawn in the events of the very next day. And when on that very next day from the cross he said, it is finished, what he really meant was, it is finished. And with those words, he reorients all of our thinking from what had been to what is now. Now that the problem of sin and death has been solved, this new state of affairs opens up to us this completely new relational world of grace administered not by a Levitical priesthood, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the death of the Lord Jesus Christ radically changes our worship, radically changes our means of access, <coughs> our means of access to God, which represents a sea change theologically for the world. But is there evidence of this? <coughs> is there evidence? Is there proof that the old covenants actually and totally passed away? Well, what does God's top to bottom rending of the temple curtain at the very moment of Christ's death tell us? Does anyone think this rending of the temple curtain at his death that it was coincidental? Or even that that rending of the temple curtain didn't actually happen? Do you think, or does anyone think, 
that the apostles just fabricated that story? How, how far do you think the story would go if they had fabricated it? If they fabricated the story, then what progress do you think the gospel would have made even among the priests, as Luke tells us, it did in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, where he writes, And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Priests who knew the facts of the matter because they went into the temple and they saw that curtain every day. These are presumably reasonable men without any predisposition naively to believe the testimony of a few young Galilean fishermen. But they saw a torn curtain. They see what God has placed before their very eyes. Do you suppose they'd have become obedient to a faith that they knew was built on the lie of a torn curtain if it wasn't really torn? It was torn. It was unmistakably torn, undeniably torn. And so now, with the death of Jesus, that long-hidden way into the very presence of God lay open. It lay bare and open for anyone to see, for anyone to enter. And there's no other rational explanation for the sudden rending of the temple curtain except to say that God himself, at the moment of the crucifixion of Jesus, God himself did it. Sin has now been expiated. The cure has been found for sin and death. God's holy wrath against the violators of this law that we're considering, God's holy wrath against the violators of this law has now been satisfied. It has been poured out on his own crucified son. And now sinners are welcome to come to him. We're welcome to know him. We're welcome to enjoy sweet fellowship with him through that new and living way of the torn curtain. But there's more. If the rending of the curtain didn't sufficiently make the point that that old style of worship had passed away, then within a generation, the new covenant arrangement between God and men became absolutely unmistakable when the whole temple came down in the final year of the Jewish war. What do you suppose it meant to the Jewish people that at the hand of the Roman general Titus in the year A.D. 70, their second temple went up in flames? And 
Furthermore, what does the end of God's revelation in biblical Hebrew and the Gospels now coming to us in common everyday Greek, what does that imply? In the first few centuries after the cross of Christ, if you were any part of Western civilization, and if you were literate, if you were able to read, what you were reading probably was Koine or common Greek. And that's exactly how this good news now comes to us. It comes to us in words even we Gentiles on the street can understand. It implies that the old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. But here's the point. While the covenantal means of access to the living God changes with the cross, and while the degree of that access opens exponentially, the triune God himself, to whom we now have access through our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God himself hasn't changed, doesn't change, cannot change. With him there is no variation or turning shadow. From the very moment he first spoke worlds into being, God is the same. Radiant and transcendent holiness. Neither moth nor rust has the power to diminish him. And presidents and prime ministers and kings and sultans have nothing with which they are able to augment him. Oh, I wish I could share with you even the slightest fragment, the slightest sliver, the slightest fraction of the triune God's glory. His eternal throne stands firm and brilliant in glory, stands beyond all the dimensions that we can know in time and space. Among other things, this means that there is not one small corner of this created universe, there is not an instant of time in all of history in which the living and true God is either more or less or in any other way different than he is right now. The afflicted sinner of the 102nd Psalm understood this and he celebrated it even in his affliction. He sang, but you, Jehovah, shall endure from age to age eternally and to all generations sure shall your memorial ever be. And we, the church, Join that psalmist in celebrating the living God as eternal, unchanging, even as the countless generations of mere men come and go. It's very important that we get a grip on this. The very plain fact is that this one living and true God, whom we worship, 
isn't like us. He's not like us. In fact, he's not like anything else or anyone else that you've ever encountered. This one living in true God can't be squeezed into the limits of our human imaginations. And admittedly, some people have some pretty active, spectacular imaginations. But he can't be fit into them. Just try to encompass the living and true God. Try to comprehend him. You're trying to measure the hurricane with a tire pressure gauge. You're trying to draw out Leviathan with a fish hook. What I'm saying is that the human imagination simply isn't up to the task of comprehending the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, the uncreated creator of all things visible and invisible. In the beginning of all things, he was already eternally there to act, there to speak these worlds, these galaxies, even time and space itself, to speak them all into being. When I look into the mirror, my shaving mirror, every morning, I marvel at the changes that I see in the man looking back at me. He's a bit more gray today than he was yesterday. The Clairol commercials say silver. But I say gray because after more than 60 years of life in this desperately fallen world, I don't feel particularly silver. And that man in the mirror also seems to have a little more skin than he did yesterday, or else apparently a little less muscle behind it. And so each morning I think, <clears throat> I think about what possible improvements I might make to what I see there in the mirror. Now, admittedly, there's only so much that can be done. We all need to play the hand that we're dealt. But the point is this. There is no part of this fallen creation, including that face in the mirror, there is nothing that can't benefit from positive change, even if it's just to run a comb through your hair. It's an improvement. But the living and true God isn't like that. He cannot improve from what he is already. As far as humanity goes, God is in fact the standard by which all improvement is measured. And if he's the standard of our moral improvement, our moral excellence, then thinking this second commandment through with all of its ramifications might be the key that unlocks the change, unlocks the reformation that is so necessary 
in our own lives. Heeding this second commandment might be the most helpful development in our lives as we learn to abandon our own vain imaginations about him and instead simply seek him as he is. Seek him as he reveals himself to be on the pages of the Bible. We're prone, after all, aren't we, to uh, think of God in terms that make us feel a little more comfortable, a little warmer, a little safer. Aren't we? Isn't that our proclivity? It's pretty hard to be in a tight spot and have to rely on a God we can't see. We'd rather fashion something we can see, fashion something that we can understand, maybe something material, something with a body more like us, or maybe something more conceptual. At least when we're in that time of trouble, when we're in that tight spot, at least let it be something that we can grasp. So there at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel told Aaron, we don't know what became of that brother of yours, Moses. He's gone up the mountain. He's been up there for weeks. Now all we have is you, Aaron. So from now on, we want you to give us a God we can see. And so Aaron gives them a God they can see a God they can comprehend, a metal one. And a pretty little thing it was, probably. Shiny, substantial, impressive, and absolutely worthless. Absolutely worthless. In fact, it was worse than useless. It was worse because it's a lie. And that golden calf taught them lies about the one glorious living and true God. And beloved, our own fallen, frail, faulty imaginations do the very same thing to us. They do. They teach us lies about God. In the 50th Psalm, here's what the living and true God says of the wicked. What he says about the man who might have the Bible on his nightstand shelf, but never cracks it open. Never submits to its plain teaching on who God is and what duty he requires of us. Here's what it says, Psalm 50. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. 
You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. And that's the root of the problem. Beloved, let's be clear. God is not just like us, not remotely. The Shorter Catechism is helpful to us here, as it always is, both for its biblical accuracy and for its concision. It is straight to the point. What is God? That's a good question. Needs to be asked more these days. What is God? Question number four of the Catechism. And that concise, biblically informed answer? God is a spirit. Infinite. Eternal. And unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, truth. Friends, commit it to memory. Commit it to memory where it can work on your heart. The Bible, you see, has an answer to that question. It is very different than the one that Aaron gave at Massa and Mariva in the wilderness. It's very different than the one Jeroboam gave to those ten breakaway tribes of Israel five or six centuries later. What is God? Well, Jeroboam's answer was this. Just have a look for yourself, people. Obviously, God is a calf. Golden. Shiny. Four-legged. And as a God, he lasts just as long as you don't knock him over or melt him down or grind him into powder. It sounds so silly because it is so silly. It is so silly. It's such a blatant lie, and it teaches such blatant lies about the living and true God that we're privileged in Jesus Christ to call our Father. Let me suggest to you, friends, that something's terribly wrong if your God fits into your pocket or your purse. Or even if it fully fits into your mind. Something's certainly wrong if you have to carry your God around with you in an ox cart and dust him off every once in a while and make sure that he's insured against loss and damage. Something's wrong if you've manufactured him, if you can fully comprehend and understand him. In closing, will you turn with me uh, to that prince of the prophets, Isaiah, who in chapter 46 contrasts the worthless burden of the Babylonian idols on the one hand with the incomparable God who graciously 
through life and eternity, carries us. He carries us. Bell has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over, they have bowed down together, they could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. even to your old age. I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you. And I will bear you, and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Amen. Let us pray.